0: And boys and girls, you can come to the front, I think. Is that okay? Yep. Yeah.
1: With the Bible, if you aren't in the front already. Come With the Bible. And if everyone can find Exodus chapter 12, which I think is on page 68 in your pew Bibles. And if we're in the front, we're going to give the kids a chance to find it. So. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Is it on page 68, I think? Sixty-eight. Perfect. Okay, and I'm going to need you guys to listen very carefully to our Old Testament reading this morning. Okay. Has everybody got it? So close. There it is. Perfect. Okay. the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do not work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses and whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. This is the word of the Lord. So, you are all here, so I don't need to invite you up. But, here we go. I am really excited to talk to you about this passage, but I have a bit of a dilemma. You see, someone suggested, because the passage talked lots and lots and lots about yeast, that I should bring some yeast with me. But I've misplaced it. It's somewhere up here, but I just can't find it. So would you guys be able to help me find it? What color is it? It's that's a really great question. It's in these like little silver packets and it says yeast on it. Is it silver? So yes. There. Well, if I give you guys there. There. Oh, there. <laughs> great. <I see> it. <laughs> there you go. Well See, I'm, no way. Well, if I give you 30 seconds, oh, look, see, one person already, see, not lazy, brought it straight to me. 30 seconds, 30, 29, 28, 27, 26, 25, 24, 23, 22, 21, 20, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, 12, 16, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, back to your seats. Whoa, thank you so much, because I'm sure Marcus would not want to have to find them later. Okay, everyone back. Thank you. We've got yeast for days now. So... Yeast. I want to talk to you guys a bit about yeast. You see, I want to show you what it looks like. So if you come really close, 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 oh, too close, too close, I'm too close. OK. Do you see how small it is? I know, it's so small. Can everyone get a chance to see? There you go, Scott. It's really small yeast. Really small. You see, it's so tiny. What is that for? Well, I'm going to tell you. So yeast, even though it's quite small, if you take your seats again, you'll be better able to see. There we go. So yeast is very small. But, there we go. Get it all out. But when we mix it with some warm water, you're right, give me a chance. And if we feed it a little bit, so we're going to give it some food. What is that? I will tell you later. If we give it some food and give it a bit of warm water. Hello. Hello, little. then it actually grows quite big you see yeast breaks down and eats sugars and then it releases a gas and eventually that's what makes bread rise that's why we use yeast but here we go sometimes it can get a bit messy so we'll just But even though it's very small, yeast helps make bread rise. And I love nice, fluffy bread. But for some odd reason, God tells the Israelites in Exodus 12 that they are to eat bread without yeast. It must be really important because in seven verses, he tells them nine different times no yeast, or he mentions yeast nine times. Not only that, but he tells them they can't bake with it. They also need to get rid of it. It needs to be completely removed from their houses. And he names the festival the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which means bread without yeast. So, why no yeast? When, when it's just so delicious. Why no yeast? Well, I can tell you two reasons. Two reasons. One, our God is all knowing. And he knew that during that first festival, which took place while the Israelites were still slaves in Egypt, that they didn't have time for the dough to rise. They were gonna have to flee quickly in the middle of the night. And so he wanted them to remember each year as they celebrated that when they were rescued, they had to flee in haste and their bread didn't have time to rise. Now, the second reason is because our God is a God who speaks. Our God communicates with us, and he uses pictures to help us understand things that we cannot see. Throughout the Bible, God uses yeast, just started to film a bit here, as a picture of sin and wickedness, because it multiplies and it spreads until it has completely taken over the dough. And you can't separate it. The yeast is is completely mixed into the dough. And if you come back at the end of the service, you'll be able to see what the final reaction has been. That's why it's so important that they completely removed yeast, not just from their bread, but also from all of their homes. Now, this chapter also tells us about a special meal at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Does anyone remember what it was called? Anyone? You can cheat and look in your Bible. Yes. The first life? No. That was a good guess. Yes. The Passover. And you may remember part of the story, But the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and Pharaoh, which is Egypt's king, had... Uh, said, I will not let them go, even though God had sent Moses and Aaron and nine plagues to try and persuade him. Plagues? Hmm? Plagues. The, the death of the firstborn was the tenth and final plague. To protect his people from death, God told them to sacrifice a perfect lamb and to spread the blood on the sides and the tops of the door frames. And all inside would be protected because when he came, he would see the blood and he would pass over their house. That's why it's called the Passover and why the lamb that was sacrificed was called the Passover lamb. Now, these two pictures, the bread without yeast, which ends up looking kind of thin and slightly unappetizing. Bread without yeast and the Passover lamb are beautiful reminders of how God rescued his people from slavery. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Israelites continued to celebrate the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread in remembrance of God's rescuing them from slavery. Until one day, a group of 13 men sat down to eat the Passover. And while they were eating, their leader, Jesus took the unleavened bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body. Take and eat. In September, does anyone remember what our memory verse was from September? Andrew kind of mentioned earlier. Yes.
0: The bread of life.
1: Yes, I am the bread of life. And we learned that since Jesus is the bread of life, But here, he also says that he is the unleavened bread, completely free of sin or wickedness, the bread of the festival celebrating God's rescuing his people from slavery. (laughs) And then he took a cup of wine, and he said, this cup is my blood, given for the forgiveness of sins. Just as the blood of the Passover lamb protected his people from death, So the blood of Jesus protects us from the death that we deserve because of our sin, if we put our faith and trust in him. And when we celebrate this particular Passover, we call it the Lord's Supper. And when we in the church celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember how the Lord has rescued us from the slavery of sin. So let's pray and thank the Lord for this sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, our Passover lamb. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you that you see the big picture and you care about the details. Thank you for rescuing the Israelites so many years ago, and thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for the precious gift of the Lord Jesus. And it is in his holy and gracious name that we pray. <coughs> Amen. Amen.
0: Well, thank you very much, Kitty. Isn't that a most amazing story, just to think that God had all that planned all those years ago, right to the point of Jesus and beyond. Just absolutely amazing how he had it all worked out. Well, you're going to go, boys and girls, now to Sunday special, K2, and we're going to stay here, so... We get to keep the yeast, by the way, so I'll just put it here so you can keep an eye on it. Um, it does tie in, by the way, it's an illustration that we have in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, so we'll be looking at the that we have. Um, we're going to take a, another song just as we prepare, just to think about the cross again. Um, I, we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians in a moment or two. Um, but in the middle of that passage, uh, It says, get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. And then the central part, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when we deal with sin, it's in light of the person of the Lord Jesus and the wonder of him giving of himself for us. That's the central truth, that when we have embraced that, everything else makes sense. So let's stand and sing, come and see. Folks, let's look at our Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, page 1147. I'll just read that to you as you uh, get it there. Uh, Paul in chapters 5, 6, and 7 is going to look at sexual immorality in the church and how we deal with it and and how we think about it. Um, And so we'll we'll start that today looking at uh, chapter 5. And uh, so let's just hear what uh, God wants to say to us this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief, And have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Well, folks, we have just a uh, interestingly been watching on our news, have we not, that the Roman Catholic Church has just expelled a cardinal for sexual immorality and is meeting at this present time in Rome to discuss the crisis and to publicly repent of how she has treated many vulnerable people and consider how best to deal with what is often described as a cancer or rottenness within the church." I mention that because I I would say to you, and I presume to everyone else around the world, that that when people hear of that, they don't believe that that it was wrong for them to do so, that it was wrong for them to expel the cardinal, or that sin within the church should not be dealt with ruthlessly. And yet for 21st century Protestant churches, the idea of expelling someone for sin, seems unloving and harsh, and we don't like even to talk of it, and the subject of church discipline is rarely, if ever, considered. One of the many good things about preaching systematically, though, uh, through a Bible book, is that these things cannot be avoided, and therefore, when we come to chapter 5, we have to deal with it. David Pryor in his commentary says about the two aspects that are drawn out of this chapter, the tragedy of much modern Christianity, and incidentally the basic reason for so much ineffective evangelization, is that the Christian community is remote from unbelievers, which is the subject of verses 9 and 10, and lacks with fellow believers who persist in sin of one kind or another. And sadly, the Corinthian church had become arrogant and boastful of their broad-minded tolerance of something that should never have been tolerated within the church, sin. And today we study what Paul says about a problem that is increasing, sexual immorality within the church, and more broadly, sin within the church. We will see within this chapter the need for discipline within the church of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and let's ask for God's help. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have to think about this sensitive and difficult topic. And Father, we pray that we will, as we've already been hearing, submit ourselves to the Word of God. And we thank you that you do reveal yourself and your plan to us for our good and for the good of your name and the glory of that name. And so we pray that we will listen well And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think I have a PowerPoint here. Oh, well, 1 Corinthians is up, yeah? Okay, that's our letter. Not sure if this is working, um, so let's just do that. So that's the first thing, the church's responsibility is to discipline. And then the next slide, and again, is the problem. If you want to look at verses 1 and 2, you'll see the problem. Not repeating what we've done, the context, of course, here is that uh, Corinth was a sex-obsessed city, it was a seaport city, and uh, prostitution was common uh, because of the, the way that the temple was set up there, homosexual sex was common, and the Corinthians were tolerant and approving of such behavior. And this presents a problem, of course, for the Christian church, as such behavior is clearly deemed sinful and wrong in the scriptures. The specific problem highlighted in verse 1 was that the man has his father's wife. That probably means that he is having sexual relations with his stepmother. Not not his own natural mother, most likely, or that would have been explicitly stated. Um, It's also likely that she wasn't a professing Christian or a church member. Uh, hence the fact that Paul doesn't deal with her, and if you look at verse 12, he says, "What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church?" So his judgment is of the church member, and though even though Paul adrives, uh, addresses this particular situation, which is sexual uh, relations in a persistent way, probably with his this man, the, this uh, his father's uh, new wife, as it were. Um, The word for sexual immorality, you may know in the Greek, is pornea, and that has a much broader application. So I suppose I want us to see not just this specific sin, but that he's talking about all kinds of sexual sin when it happens within the church. So the issue is a church member sleeping with his stepmother persistently and openly, and that has produced the response within the church of pride, a blasé attitude, and a tolerant attitude, whereas Paul says, if you read on, that they should be grief-stricken, and they should have expelled this offending church member. That is the problem. And the question is, of course, why did they allow such a situation to be tolerated? Why would we allow something similar to happen in the church today, and possibly within Adelaide Road? I think this is the difficulty, isn't it? Because culturally, it's very difficult to call somebody out on their sinfulness. It is considered, is it not, unloving, harsh, and intolerant. And there is absolutely no appetite at all to confront and deal with people who we sense, or who we know, are sinning. Some, by the way, might say it's the job of the elders that it's not my responsibility as a church member. But you don't find that here. It is saying that it's the church's responsibility to do this work, to call people out, to call them to repentance. And, and I think one of the other things, and I've actually heard this, not about Adelaide Road, but a previous church that I attended where someone had been engaged in a sexual misdemeanor, is that the church were very reticent to deal with it because the quality of the relationships between them were not really good enough. It wasn't a bad church, but we really don't know each other well. We don't have caring relationships with one another. And therefore it seems hypocritical, doesn't it, when we don't even get involved in people's lives on a day-to-day basis, that we might then call them out on something that is known to be sinful. And I think theologically, some of the answers that were given here is that they may have been arguing theologically that they were now no longer under the law. Many of them had been converted from Judaism and had been brought up under the law. And now they're saying we're no longer under the law. If you look in chapter 6 and verse 12, uh, Paul is, I think, mimicking them when he says, everything is permissible for me. Everything is permissible for me. In other words, we can do what we want. Because the grace of God will forgive us, and we're no longer under the law. And Romans deals with that and says that that is a nonsense. And we were saved by grace and have a freedom to live. And, and I think the other thought here, perhaps, is dualism, where the Greek uh, separated the body and the spirit, so you could do what you wanted with the body, because the spirit was important, so you could have sexual relations and do all sorts of things that you wanted to do. And it didn't really count because what was important was the spread. I suppose what I just want to say about this, folks, is that kind of thinking is very common today. We find all sorts of ways, do we not, to nullify the Word of God. We, we say that it's, you know, it's unloving. We say that it's harsh. We say that we can't possibly do that because our culture won't tolerate it. We, 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 we say, look, I can't do that. It's not my responsibility. We might even change the scriptures to emphasize one part over another or to actually deny, deny that it says things. That's what we do so that we don't actually have to deal with the reality, as Paul calls it out here, that this person is in the wrong, that they are sinning without repentance, and that it needs to be dealt with. It's easy to see why, similar, why similarly we might be tempted not to deal with sin in church members. So, Paul's diagnosis of the problem that they, that they tolerated and contro- condoned gross and persistent sexual sin by a member rather than grieve the situation and take action is not heeded. So, that is the problem. And then, if we look in verses three to five, we see the purpose uh, process and the purpose. I did manage to find all Ps in this, by the way, but that was just by the by. So Paul is with them in this, as you see. He's not physically present, but he's in the Spirit, and he has no doubt about the person's guilt. What the person has done and is doing is sin, as defined by the Word of God. Leviticus, by the way, chapter 18 and verse 8, specifically deals with this, and so does the whole chapter about sexual sin. And it's an offense to God and therefore an offense to the church. And this is the reason we must sweep aside all the spurious theology and cultural reticence which we face today and become captives to the word of God. I like David Jackman's comment on this. He said it, and, that by, its, and by that he meant the word of God. The word of, you know, its prohibitions are absolute and its definition of sin final. That's if we want to know what sin is, it's the scriptures that we go to. So this authority of the apostle is set in the context of the presence and power of the Lord Jesus. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Verse four, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. So when when we meet as a church, the power of the Lord Jesus is present, and it's present as we worship. It's present as we discipline, because he is with us. He dwells with us. We are his temple, as we saw last week or two weeks ago. And so the responsibility is of the whole church to call out the person for their sin and to hand them over to Satan, which I think probably means that they're just placed outside of the protection of the family of God and into the world. And in that sense, and this is the serious aspect of it, they are not protected by God in that sense. Under his sovereignty, of course, as you read on, um, the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus, if you want to read that, um, hand hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So the Lord is still in control, But they're handed over to Satan, and Satan is allowed to attack their flesh and their body, but their spirit will be saved on the day of judgment. This person is not lost spiritually. God alone is in control of their salvation, and the purpose of discipline is always restorative. That is why it is loving and the right thing to do for them, for the church and the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. So, we discipline with the authority of the Word of God, we discipline with the presence of God in the context of the whole church for the good of the person, the church and the glory of God. And such discipline is always intended to be restorative and not affect the eternal salvation of the believer. Sin in in a member of the church is very serious and must be dealt with. That is the process that we have. And then next, we have the positive outcome. I suppose in some ways I'm repeating myself here, but he argues, and I think as, as Katie was doing so well, verses 6 to 8 is about uh, the Passover. It's likely, um, it appears that Paul is writing this letter to them at the time of the Passover, uh, which is the Christian festival, by the way, of Easter. Um, I kind of struggled a little bit. What was he really talking about there? I've settled on the idea that he's talking for the church about Easter. He's very keen that they would be able to deal with this situation and move on so that they can celebrate the festival, which is Easter, positively and sincerely and in truth. Having got rid of the leaven, so to speak, which is mostly a symbol for evil in the Old Testament, then they can be what they are called to be a community of truth and sincerity, a holy people, a community serious about sin, but also actively working at fellowship and community, fully engaged with each other in honest and sincere relationships. What ultimately unites us is a deep love and appreciation of the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for us. That's why I think if we meditate and and gaze upon the cross, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When we see the truth of that, when we come and see, when we come and weep, when we understand the reality of that, then we will, as it were, want to deal with sin in our own lives and in the lives of others in that loving way so that we can be what we are a community of sincerity and truth, a community of believers in the Lord Jesus. And I suppose what struck me about this, folks, is do you see what he's saying here? So that we might celebrate, keep the festival, that we might enjoy this festival. And I I suppose part of the issue for me is, do we enjoy Easter? We're going to be doing services in this service over Holy Week. We're planning for that. It's a great opportunity, isn't it, to talk to people about what Christianity is all about. Are we as a church excited? Will we get involved in inviting people? Will we get involved in um, reaching out? Will we take Easter seriously? Or is it our first thought? Holiday. I wonder, can I get away? We need to be careful that we don't downplay, as it were, the reality of what Christ has done for us. And that motivates everything that we do. So I'll leave that at that. We have a lot to think about in that. We'll go on to the next one then. So the next point I think he's making here is that the church's involvement with sinners. I, I put sinners, or I should have put it in, in inverted commas there, but we'll move on um, as well. And the next one is this penetration into the world idea. So you see there in verse 9 that Paul has written a previous letter. If you have your Bibles open, uh, you f- if you flick over to 2 Corinthians... I'm j- I really haven't done enough work on this to discover whether this is right or not, but some people think that the second letter or this uh, previous letter is incorporated in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 7 1. You see the title there is Do Not Be Yoked with Unbelievers. And it's a very famous passage, as it were. We often quote it Do not be yoked with unbelievers in terms of marriage and all of those ideas. But this may be the letter that he's speaking about. Um, so 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14-7. Um, I'll leave that at that. We'll come back to that, of course, at some stage as well. But he says, I have written to you in my letter not to associate it with sexually immoral people. And it seems that this letter has been misinterpreted. Because really what the misinterpretation seems to be is that they've just withdrawn completely from the world and that they become, as it were, this holy huddle. And Paul takes this opportunity, therefore, to clarify his teaching. I have spent a lot of time this week thinking about this because um, it is a perennial thing, isn't it? Um, It's a a problem for us. And and we often talk about this, isn't it, that we don't really have many non-Christian friends. That we're not really in relationship with them to the extent that we can influence them and i'm not talking about working with them that is right and good of course but i'm talking about wanting to be in relationship with them i'm talking about wanting to be involved in their lives and to help them and and often i mean i don't want to spend a lot of time in this but you know pietism we're just happy to be pietistic which means that we're we're just we want to be Christians and we want to spend time with the Lord and we're in a kind of self-contained personal holiness and we walk through the world unaffected by it. Is that you? It's certainly, me. Monasticism, where we withdraw into a separated community. Are we like that? Is everything that you do during the week with Christians here, or Christians? in evening times? Are we just a community that nobody out there knows anything about us? I'm sure we are. And, And this was a new one to me. I've just tightened it psychological. I don't know if that's a good title or not. We need to think about that again. But the idea that we just simply withdraw And I've been guilty of this, isn't it? The city's too big, it's too bad, it's too far removed from Christianity that we can't possibly even think about going there. So what do we do? We just become apathetic. We disengage. We become uninvolved. And we just psychologically withdraw from the big, bad world. And it's our basic default position. I I don't deny that at all. I think that is our basic default default position. That's what all of us do to, to a greater or lesser extent. And those that don't do it actually we find don't fit the churches easily. They're so busy doing other things and we're wondering what they're doing and why they're not involved in the church. And we kind of wrongly invert what they may be trying to do. You see, the response of the Corinthian church was compromise. They embraced the world's thinking, didn't they? And they settled with them And and I think that's the other thing that we do. It's too big, it's too bad, we don't involve ourselves. So the other side of that argument, I should have said, is that we just compromise. We embrace the world's thinking, we settle with them, and we sadly think the Scriptures. uh, We either ask the Scriptures to back up our view, or we just say the Scriptures are wrong, or we remain ignorant of them. It may not be our intention either to compromise or to deny the the clear teaching of Scripture, but somehow, like the frog warming in the warm water, Life is gradually taken from the church and it is engulfed in the world's thinking. I think that's what we're like. And Paul says that's not what we should be like. So what is the Bible's point of view? Well, Jesus said, did he not? My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Paul in verse 10 says, of course, they're not at all meaning the people of the world. In that case, you would have to leave this world. You can also see that he isn't just talking about sexual immorality, but he's talking about greed or attitude to wealth, food, possessions, seen as idolatry, alcohol, or speech, especially if it's violent, deceitful, or abusive. And in this, there is no hierarchy of sin. I want to say that. There is no hierarchy of sin. I came across, and I haven't got it written down here, but I read an example of Luther and he wanted to expel a church member. Why did he want to expel a church member? Because the man had bought a house at X, and had sold the house at 20X, and Luther called him a greedy swindler, and that such a man did not deserve to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. He said he should have sold it at 3X or 5X, but not at 20X. Now, I just thought that was an interesting example of how we would often praise somebody because they had sold their house for multi-millions after only buying it for a 100,000. And we we do so easily embrace the world's thinking. And it's not an attitude that the world stands up and looks at and says, that's not a generous attitude. And there's so much work that we need to do in each of these sins when we think about the reality of how they uh, come to us. So we do need to penetrate the world we're not called to withdraw. We do need to sit down with our diaries, do we not? I've been thinking about this week myself. How do you, will you spend your days this week? How will you? And I'm not saying about stopping coming to church activities, but I'm saying, will you make time for people who don't know the Lord to serve them, to have a coffee with them, to find out how they're doing? Because we must penetrate into the world if we're to be effective. I think I have another slide there. You remember this? I couldn't find the best one in that sense. But that's the imagined church. We've done all this work with the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. Normally, we're the red dots in the corner. We're all in that corner. But we're called to penetrate the world, called to be in the world and speaking to people about the Lord Jesus. So, if you go on to the next one then, um, what is Paul saying here? He's, he's really saying that you must now, now not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or a sister in that sense. Um, let me just go back to verse 11. So, what is he saying? He's not saying, I think, that we're not to associate with people in the world. He is saying that we must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or sister, a Delphoi, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an adulterer or slanderer, drunkard or swindler, we're not even to eat with such a person. It's probably talking about communion, might be talking about table fellowship in just the sense of sharing a meal, because really what he's saying is that there has to be purity in the world. And Paul concludes his argument, doesn't he, by saying that it isn't the job of himself and therefore the church to judge the world, God will do that, we, by the way, spend too much time in critical judgment of the world. And because we have a judging attitude, no doubt, um, we, and if we accepted that God would judge the world, we'd be more involved in getting alongside side of them and help them and bring the good news of the gospel to them. But look at verse 12. Paul, in a rhetorical question at the end of verse 12, says, Are you not to judge those in sight? I believe the answer from this chapter is yes, we are. We should. We should try and get people to understand the seriousness of their sin. We should try to get them to understand that it's a denial of who they claim to be. We should try to get them to see that it's a disgrace to the name of the Lord Jesus. That it's a slight on the reality of what the death of, the cross, of Jesus on the cross accomplishes, and what the power of the Holy Spirit can do. We should get them to see that it brings the church into disrepute. We should get to see that when they live their lives in sin, they're ineffective as Christians, and there's no witness where they're living and acting. And we should bring them back, of course, because if they persist in that, though we do not judge them We have no evidence to really claim that they truly know the Lord Jesus themselves and they may be lost. Folks, we should have this desire. We should have this desire that they would not be, as we've already described, someone being saved but escaping through the the flames with nothing to show at the end of their lives. Habitual sin denies the gospel. A true child of God will not do these things. An unreformed lifestyle denies the power of the gospel. And such behavior in a church member, uh, we should be deeply concerned, and we should take action. many will argue that to expel someone from church is an unloving response to moral failure. But both the Old Testament, if you look at verse 13, and if you look at the bottom of your page, you see those references in Deuteronomy, many, many references, even in one book, to expelling the wicked from among you. And of course, we've just looked at what it says in the New Testament about that, because it is a loving and a restorative act. And folks, even when this has been said, we do need to be careful. We can be hard and critical when we should give more fully account of the human frailty that people experience. We should not use such teaching, of course, to constantly beat people over the heads. But if in the final analysis there is persistent sin in a church member, that person should be told to leave until repentance occurs. On the other side of the coin, to tolerate such sin and even boast about our tolerance is equally unloving and leads to the whole church being contaminated and problems for the church and that person. So what is the focus for such thinking? What is the regulation for any talk of sin in the believer? Well, it has to be, as I've said, verse 7. It is the image Paul wishes to leave the church with in Corinth and also in Adelaide Road. Any acceptance or participation in sin for the believer is an offense to the Lord Jesus, our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed for us. He is our Lord and Savior, and he calls us to be serious about sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I loved the passage from last week where Kevin was talking about Paul coming to these folks, not as a teacher, and not with a whip, as the teachers did in those days, but with a father, as a father. And they only had one father. And so, Father, I pray that these words will have been preached with a fatherly intent. And that, Father, that you will cause each of us as your children to hear the words of the Father speak. And that, Father, that we will understand in our hearts how serious sin is, from that personal sin that we commit that nobody knows anything about, to the public sin that we're quite happy to commit, even though we know that it's wrong. And Father, I pray that you will help us both as the pastor and the elders, but particularly as the community of God, to have a deep and prayerful and loving concern for everyone who claims to be members of this church, that they might walk with you and that they might bring honor and glory to your name. Father, we pray that we might understand that this is loving and good and that we might do it for their good and for the honor and the glory of the name of our crucified Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, let's worship God as we give our offering to him now. Well, folks, let's join together just as we pray for others at this time. Um, I'm just going to lead us in that. Father, as we think about the world and... uh, We go outside of ourselves, we think of Venezuela, and Father, the political turmoil there, and I suppose what struck me was that the people suffer. When we think about the Democratic Republic of Congo and Lord, poor leadership there, and armed factions, particularly in the east, Father, we see that people suffer. When we think of the situation in Yemen and the outside political interference in that country, we see that people suffer and that children die. When we think about Syria and Libya and dictatorships that have either fallen or continue and are propped up by others from without side, we see that people suffer. Father, we believe in your sovereign control and your good purpose. We believe in human responsibility and sin. And so, Father, we pray for leaders who desire to do what is right in these countries that they will be given the ability to lead and that father that the people will follow them we pray for the people and organizations committed within those countries to do good and to bring peace that you will be with them and help them to flourish we pray for people at a local level that they will be fed that they will be secure and that they will be given hope. And Father, we pray for the churches that continue to struggle and work and live in those countries, that they would be at the front and active, and that they would be influential in their worlds, bringing truth and sincerity, love and hope. We pray in Jesus' name. And Father, we pray for our own country, and we could settle on ideas so there's a culture of drugs and violence, Many, many people are trapped in debt. Father, when we talk to people, there's such incredible mediocrity. People are just bored and apathetic. We realize, Father, that there's much false religion in Ireland, that there are many who are in loveless relationships. And, Father, yet when we see how good you have been to us, and we've seen how much you have given to us, Father, how we should be rejoicing, in all that you have given to us and that we should be offering this life and this help to others and i pray father that we will not turn a blind eye to the needs in our country but that father that we will pray and that we will be actively involved father we pray particularly for those who are sick within our congregation we think particularly this morning of billy gilmore many will know that billy will not know that billy has been in hospital for the past week having fallen and had probably a mini stroke, we want to pray for Billy as he comes to the end of his life, and as he feels tired and weak. We pray, Father, and thank you for his great hope in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that it's a joy to visit him because he is able to think about you, and he knows that you are with him, and he knows that you will take him to be with you at some time, maybe even soon. And, Father, I pray that you will just encourage him to be like that, even though he is incredibly weak. And, Father, we pray for Jonathan Mitchell. And, Father, we're saddened by his diagnosis of leukemia. And, Father, we want to pray for his recovery. We want to pray that he will live well each day, that you will bless him and his wife Tuva, that you will strengthen their marriage, that you will help them to grow deeper as people through this difficulty but father most of all we pray that he might come to know the lord jesus we pray that he might have that assurance that if he were to die that he would be with you in heaven forever we pray for comfort for his his family for david and for dorothy for matthew and for tuva and father we believe that you are the father of compassion and the god of all comfort And so we pray that you will meet their needs. And Father, we pray for John Reed. And Father, the fact that he faces increasing weakness every day. We pray that you will continue to comfort him with the truth of the gospel. That as we share the scriptures together on a weekly basis, that you will encourage him to keep thinking about Jesus. And that, Father, that you will bring him into a relationship that is good and perfect and wholesome. And, Father, we pray that he might have hope even as he loses, as it were, physical strength, the hope of life now and life after death. So, Father, we see the needs of just these three people, and we realize that all of us have needs and that we are your community. And so I pray that you will help each of us to really care deeply for one another and that, Father, that you will give us that desire that spirit that is concerned and that reaches out to each other as family members and father we pray for your honor and glory in jesus name amen folks we're going to stand and finish our service by singing uh, about the lord jesus but also about the church so let's stand to sing Glory! may the grace of our lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Folks, don't forget to have a look at the yeast and the effect that it has. And uh, yeah, thank you to Katie for that again.